0: Welcome back to the 218th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including uh, an interesting story about a lobbyist and his shady dealings in Ohio, how the geopolitical struggle that we're facing right now all across the world is actually changing in dynamics a little bit, and a article talking about how Haley is actually getting a lot of grassroots support. And of course, we're going to end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, there's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So what is the limit of what you think a lobbyist can do? Uh, Is it they can only try to Persuade people on the Hill? Are they allowed to do a little bit of circumnavigating and kind of trade favors for their people on the Hill? Where should that line be? And there are already pieces of legislation out there defining this, but what do you feel like is morally right when you analyze the situation, when you kind of give it a little bit of a gut check? I'd love to hear what you have to say. And this first story, if you don't already have an opinion, may actually blow your mind a little bit as to what some lobbyists are willing to do for their clients. So our first article comes from the New York Times, and the headline reads, Every politician has got to have somebody that's the hitman. And that's actually a direct quote from a politician in Ohio, uh, Neil Clark. And sorry, he was actually the, the lobbyist, and that was his quote. And he was kind of perceived as this mastermind, this kind of do-it-all hitman uh, and a lobbyist in Ohio, and his story is extremely fascinating. Quote, on a spring morning in 2021, the Ides of March, to be exact, Clark has hundreds of miles away from all of that. So he was talking about all the workings in the Ohio legislature. Quote, he was in southwestern Florida driving around and split his time between the Gulf Greens of the coast and the state house in Columbus, where until recently his republic lobbying firm had been thriving. As he neared a retention pond, Clark pulled over and stepped out into the warm Florida air. He took the gun that he had with him as he walked towards the far side of the pond where palm crowns burst out from the underbrush. A little before noon, sheriff's deputies found Clark lying behind the pond, the handgun in the grass between his legs, still legible through the blood on his T-shirt, read, DeWine for governor. A a memoir he left for his family to publish, part political tell-all, part extended suicide note, is subtitled, A Sicilian Never Forgets. And that, there's kind of a play that, well, he's a little bit of a, Gangster, so to speak. You know, he was, I think, one of the titles that he was given was Godfather of Lobbyists. So, kind of playing on this Italian heritage a little bit. And he even kind of took advantage of that himself and writing this memoir. And it's really, really fascinating when we start to do a little bit more of a deep dive into what Mr. Clark was doing on the hill there in Ohio. And the reason I thought that this article was important to highlight is it shows the the backroom dealings a little bit of what's going on in some of these legislators which is it's not just and I'm not trying to say that this is not this is true of every single politician but it's not just good-hearted men doing what they want to do in the background and trying to make sure that at the end of the day the government is actually serving the people that that is what we would love to believe a lot of good people Who get into politics are doing and that's what a lot of good people who do get into politics do but there are those who are i don't want to say machiavellian but they're playing on this idea that government is the ultimate source of power within the united states and we are going to hold those reins and use them to our own ends and to pretend otherwise is to be naive to pretend that everybody is good and perfect Which I don't think anybody really has an illusion that they are. But the reason it's important to have articles just like this, whether or not you 100% agree with the characterization of Mr. Clark, maybe you knew him personally. Maybe he was a really stellar guy and he was a really great family man outside of his job. But when he was in his job, he was cutthroat and he was working with some of the most cutthroat in Ohio. Cloak... Quote, Clark and a Householder shared a bellicose sensibility and an appetite for political dark arts. They put those qualities to work to bring about Householder's insurgent ascent to the House speakership in two thousand one. So he became the House speaker in the Ohio delegation, and actually he recently came back onto the political field trying to uh, get a Senate seat for Ohio quote Householder left office 3 years later because of term limits and spent a decade away from politics but before returning to the house in 2017 he planned to retake the speakership sorry not going for the senate of ohio but he went back to the house of the ohio and got in touch with clark Every politician has got to have somebody that's his hitman, Clark once explained to a client. At one point over the phone, he and Householder discussed the possibility of publicizing negative information about the families insufficiently supportive of Republicans. Quote, if you're going to explicitive with me, Householder said, I'm going to ex- explicitive with your kids. In these moments, his down-to-home drawn, drawl receded, giving way to a flatter, colder affect. And... This is the part of politics that really stirs people and makes people angry, including myself, which is, okay, we will go to the uh, any ends. We will use any means to reach those ends. We will attack your family. We will put out negative articles that could possibly hurt your your marriage or the relationship with your children. We're going to put information out there that directly harms you, even though it could affect the people around you, or even the people in your community. And that's not to say that if somebody does something wrong, you need them, or at least they should, take responsibility for it. I'm not disagreeing with that sort of sentiment. But doing it out of pure malice, rather than trying to put it out there for truth's sake, and make sure that that person is held accountable, and you're trying to ensure that they actually have to feel the responsibility of the choices they make. If you do it purely out of political calculation in order... To get your own will implemented, that is when it is the lowest of low. And that's why, when people like this are put out into the light, we need to take a serious moment to re examine. Are preconceptions. And I don't want to make everybody jaded. I don't want to pull everybody onto the side of the cynical side like myself, because I do have a, a lighter side, a more benefit of the doubt side as well, that wants to believe that certain things are done out of the goodness of people's hearts. But we do have to acknowledge reality every once in a while. So when these things come out, they need to get enough coverage so that we can, one, highlight the people who are doing wrong here, but also so that we can weed out this sort of mentality from politics. Because when these articles come out and they get extremely popular, it show, and the person who was doing the terrible things gets lambasted for it, it shows the public sentiment is not on the side of these sort of political actors. We will not stand for people that are only in there for their own machinations. No, we want people that serve us. We have to keep them accountable. And that's normally the job of journalists and And the job of an informed public to keep out for these sort of stories or even report on them when things come out that are not necessarily favorable. I don't care what you think about Householder. He may be a great political actor. That doesn't mean that he's doing things purely for the goodness of the people around him, even for a ideology which he truly holds at his heart. He, they characterize him here as a, a madman and, like I used the word earlier, a Machiavellian figure. And that may not be 100% accurate, but when you make statements like you just made, it's kind of hard to not at least see you in a negative and terrible light when you're trying to go after someone's children because they don't necessarily agree with you or they won't work with you. So, Let's go to this little bond, this little devilish uh, grouping, which is Householder and Clark and what it meant when they got reunited. Quote, Householder and Clark's reunion eventually led to what federal prosecutors would call likely the greatest bribery and money laundering scheme ever per perpetrated against the people of the state of Ohio in July 2020. The FBI arrested Householder Clark and three others on political corruption charges. They were accused of taking millions of dollars in donations from an energy company in exchange for passing a law that awarded the company $1.3 billion in subsidies and also gutted climate regulations. When Clark read the criminal complaint, he was surprised to find it littered with his own colorful locations. If you attack a member, you're going to explicit rip your explicit off and so on somehow the feds had been listening in on his conversations clark pled not guilty but committed suicide before the trial date could be set and the others are still going to be held criminally liable they are still on the hook for this but i think that this shows that in american in the american system there are plenty of people that get away but when you cover this, you get out these sort of stories, when we expose the corruption. And it's not just about exposing the corruption and trying to take these people down because they're bad actors. It's also about upholding the moral values that we care about. And the reason I think that he committed suicide, one, because he thought his life was over, that he wasn't going to get out of this, but two, because he genuinely felt bad for what he was doing. Somewhere deep down inside his soul, he thought it was not worth living anymore with the terrible burdens that he was carrying. And whether or not I agree with the political agenda they were pursuing, if you do it in a way that violates the core tenets of this government, which is to protect every... I've gone over this so many times in the last few podcasts, but it is 100% true that you need to protect the individual rights of every single person underneath the law. And if you are doing something where you're favoring one person or group over the other simply because of money, that is not abiding by the core tenets of the American government, the system that we have in place. And also, I think we've developed this moral idea as well, whether that's through our Christian background, the Western Christian background we have, or simply through this American mythology that we started to form. That everybody should be treated equally underneath the law and on earth in general. And when I say treated equally, I don't mean that everybody's going to have equal outcomes. Not everybody has the same equal ability, but they deserve the equal same amount of respect for simply being human. I feel like this moral has become so ingrained in deep in the psyche of America that it goes beyond government itself. And that's why when people violate that norm, they have an extreme amount of guilt. And yes, I know that people are going to argue, no, he literally offed himself because it was more about him not being able to get away with it. But I think that that on top of his guilt is what took him there. And I don't I don't like that when stories like this get exposed, people feel as though they need to take their life. I don't want to encourage anybody to do that. I don't want to force anybody in that situation, but I do want him to be responsible for his actions. And this is actually the ultimate scapegoat. I'm not, I'm not trying to crap on a man when he's gone. What I'm saying is this is an easy way out of not having to bear the burden of your actions. And... God bless his family. I'm sorry that this happened to you. But the man that you loved, the man that you had in your life who was protecting you, who's bringing in money for you, he did it in a corrupt way and he took the easy way out. And it's not acceptable. So at the end of the day, we need to keep having stories like this come out. We need people on the beat like this. Uh, we need Mr. Ian McDougall, I believe is how you pronounce his name, to keep doing research like this and call out the politicians, the lobbyists that are doing these shady backroom door deals. And we need to root it out while we can. So let's jump to our next article that also comes from the New York Times. I know a lot of Article is probably behind a paywall for most of you. You can still go and find the link in the description below the like and subscribe button where I have a link to these articles. Maybe you get a free article because you haven't read a New York Times one yet, or you know somebody with a subscription, log into their account so you can read through these a little bit more thoroughly. So the headline reads Opinion A Titanic Geopolitical Struggle is Underway. And the reason I thought that this article was worth bringing up there. Is because we are living in a new era where we're starting to see. Well, I think you could actually connect the thread of the first one and the second one, both of these stories, in the idea that things have become set. The geopolitical framework after 2000s has become set. The political system after Citizens United has also become very set, and we're starting to see a little bit of pushback, a little bit of changing in all these systems. But the geopolitical one is a lot larger than the Pushing back against corruption. That's on a populist front. It's not necessarily changing within the institutions. On the geopolitical front, the institutions throughout the entire world, all these different sovereign nations are having to adjust their paradigms in order to keep up with this change. Quote, There are many ways to explain the two biggest conflicts in the world today, but my own shorthand has been that Ukraine wants to join the West and Israel wants to join the Arab East. And Russia, with Iran's help, is trying to stop the first. And Iran, with Hamas are trying to stop the second. While the two battlefronts may look very different, they actually have a lot in common. They reflect a titanic geopolitical struggle between two opposing networks of nations, non-state actors who over whose value and interest will dominate our post-post-Cold world War world. Following the relatively stable Pax Americana and globalization era, that was ushered in by the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and the collapse of the Soviet bloc, America's chief Cold War rival. So, I don't necessarily... Okay, so, the author goes on to explain these two power centers, which one is like Russia, China, and Iran. the a little bit more authoritarian countries, the ones who want to move backwards into a less globalized world where they feel as though they could have more regional influence. And then the Western block that is trying to unite the world, tether everything together. And he goes on to describe one is good and one is bad very objectively. And let's be clear, I think the ends that certain groups or certain blocks are trying to reach, and I don't think that it's as simple as saying they all have one united goal. No, they have their own separate interests and are aligning because those interests are similar. But to say that simply because they're seeking out their interests, they are bad, is too superficial. And just to assume that the West is good, it is too superficial. What Iran is trying to do by destroying Israel is terrible. What Russia is trying to do by invade Ukraine and invade another sovereign nation, just like Iran's trying to take out the sovereign nation of Israel, those are all terrible things. Same with China trying to take over the sovereign nation of Taiwan. All of these things are bad, and I don't necessarily think it's a terrible characterization to say overall that this network is bad, but to simply equate this group as equals bad, and to simply equate the West as good, I think that that is overly simplistic. Now, am I going to deny that the West is normally working for things that we in the West would view as better? 100%. But there are also bad things that we do, which is uh, prop up Ukraine and continue to tell them to throw their own citizens at a war with Russia where they should be backing down and trying to make peace rather than devastating their population and their infrastructure. Are we coming out and handling the Gaza-Israel issue properly? Are we being a little bit mealy-mouthed, a little bit mixed-signaled? That's not good, and our intentions aren't always good either. We Most people in the foreign policy realm just want to go after Iran because, yes, they may be doing things that would be considered objectively bad, and they're trying to work against our interests, but does that mean that by us directly attacking their proxies and trying to use it as a way to, because you heard this language about the axis of evil in Iran when the October 7th attack first happened, American people didn't necessarily buy that. They were not primed to instantly attack Iran, and there are people in the Foreign Policy Administration that definitely want to attack Iran, and I would say that is not good. Just like Iran's trying to destroy a sovereign nation, our efforts and trying to rationalize why we can attack a sovereign nation simply for working against our interests is not a good thing. So to pretend that one side is objectively the only bad one versus another side that is the only good one is to really mix the messages and to, I would say, Be lying to yourself to some degree, to be truly endorsing the Western mindset that we are the good. We are spreading democracy because it is the the righteous move or we're trying to increase global trade because it helps everybody. Yes, global trade and this idea of having as little restrictions between trade of other nations as possible. Yeah, that will lift other nations out of poverty, but also it will help us keep our products cheap around the world. So to deny our self-interest and to say that whatever we're doing is good and ignore some of the negatives that come along with it, I think it actually erodes his standing. That doesn't mean that we don't have more good things that we're aiming for than the other side, but to not accept that we're not all good. To not accept that we have some bad mixed in with us to other people, and to not acknowledge that, to not take that into the argument, and justify and talk about why those are valid points, but why at the end of the day, even if we are, even if we are using other places as our factory and trying to get cheaper labor... Just like it did with China, it will lift them out of poverty and eventually it will stimulate their economy to the point where they move beyond just simple industrial jobs where they're paying their laborers a low amount of money because they've become skilled. They've brought infrastructure to those nations and slowly lift them out of poverty instead of acknowledging the bad argument and talking about the good arguments that come along with it, you are being superly superficial or just overly superficial. Or you could just say you're being superficial and you're not acknowledging. And this is why people who are not of the West have an issue with the West mentality because things like this come out and they can't even seem to empathize or at least acknowledge where somebody else would be coming from. And they can't even acknowledge the bad things that come along with them. And what I would say is, is a cost benefit analysis. Yes. The West brings maybe... 30% of bad things along with their movement. But the other 70% are good things. And you can't deny that the 30% is happening. You just have to say these other good things outweigh that. And we have to keep stimulating here. And we have to acknowledge that we are an overall good but we also have to address the bad that comes along with it. And this sort of mentality, where we just ignore it, is why people in other countries around the world look at the West and they say, you just don't get it. You don't understand what's going on here. You think you're almighty. You don't necessarily understand the harm that you bring to our nation. And this is just another example of perpetuating that narrative where West good and then the axis of evil, if you want to use the... Uh, 2000s terms or this uh, anti-connectivity network as he would describe it here it's just another term for the same thing um it's another blanket poor foreign policy take that doesn't necessarily try to take on any nuance and try to actually explain to the American people why people outside the United States and outside the West may not 100% agree with them, even though they could be working for something righteous, even though they could bring great things along with them to pretend as though it is all good is naive. And I don't think most people do believe that, because most people know that nothing in life is all good. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. We know that saying here in the West, in America. We say it all the time, but for some reason it can't apply to our foreign policy. So I would suggest going and giving this article a really good read. It's a pretty darn long one, and that's why I'm not pulling out a whole bunch of quotes, because we could be here pointing to different examples for quite some time. But I think that it is a article that's meant to completely endorse the current view of West good and why we should, I don't want to say uh, force, but why we should push our agenda across the world. And once again, it misses why people criticize the West. And in doing so, it gives a false perception because it is the New York Times. They do have some authority and people that read this who are just going to accept it as it is they are not going to understand why other places around the world don't necessarily want us involved. And maybe they'll get their articles from another source and this is the author just saying his opinion. I just disagree with his opinion and I thought it was important to point it out because this was a very popular story on the website when I went on the day of. I think it was, um, I don't want to say trending because I don't know how their trending algorithm works, but it was very much near the top. So either they were promoting it or it was being promoted by an algorithm of lots of people going through and clicking on it. So, let's jump to our final article that comes from Fox News. Haley's grassroots fundraising soars, but a top-dollar liberal donor wants to see a path to victory. So, there's lots of interesting things going on with that headline and in the story. Uh, I think they purposely put that liberal donor thing in there because they don't want to see Nikki Haley anymore. Uh, they want to brand her like trump has as a a quasi democrat uh, a liberal and i i don't disagree with some of the characterizations which she does fall closer to the middle ground the uh, quote unquote establishment of the 19 uh, late 1980s early 1990s where the we as we discussed in the previous article we did have a post cold war era uh, the big bad that the republicans kept pushing with Russia and versus socialism, it kind of died out. So we had an era of globalization. Both card- parties kind of came together as free trade. They were willing to make more bipartisan efforts. And I think she is a relic Of that era. And that's why you do see some liberals, some Democrats actually willing to vote for her or at least donate to her campaign because they see her as the most close to center Republican that was in the race before everybody dropped out. And now she definitely is the most close to center uh, other candidate in the race because everybody else has dropped out. So let's jump into the information from. The article, quote, Nikki Haley is enjoying a surge in small dollar grassroots fundraising. But following her 11-point loss to former President Donald Trump in new Ham- the New Hampshire primary-, primary, which was seen by political pundits as her best shot at slowing down Trump's push for the GOP nomination, liberal mega-donor and Lincoln co-founder Reed Hoffman appears to be one of the first wealthy donors who's apparently heading for an exit. A top advisor the mega-donor told Fox News that a new potential path for victory would be needed to appear before sending any further contributions to Nikki Haley. And what I think is interesting here is they're trying to relay the news, but also undercut it a little bit. And this is Fox News, obviously not vying for Nikki Haley, not saying that they don't like her, just saying that they obviously would prefer Trump over to her. Otherwise, you wouldn't have both of these things in here. You would talk about her amazing fundraising, and then you would probably talk about a separate article saying that The donors pulling out if you wanted to have them as separate things and not portray something in particular, but they're putting both of them in here together. They're talking about, oh, yeah, she made an amazing amount of money in fundraising from small dollar donors, but also one of her bigger biggest donors kind of pulled out. And let's be clear, I think that you could make an all-encompassing article where you talk about all of her fundraising, but you would also include other donors that have come on that are still willing to support her, and you wouldn't mention specifically the liberal ones, so they're obviously coming from a very specific point of view when they're trying to get at the point that Nikki Haley is getting money, but she's losing some of that big support. And one of those big previous supporters was a liberal, and he's saying that they need a new path to victory, and I, I think this is true. While there is grassroots sentiment for Nikki Haley. I think it could be more independent-minded people putting down some dollars for her after they saw that I believe it was 60-some percent of her votes in the New Hampshire primary came from independents, not Republicans. So maybe other independents around the country are like, yeah, we should definitely de- give her some money so that she's the nominee rather than Trump. Because, uh, you know, independents, they can give anybody can give money to anybody. But independents, they were probably willing to give money to both sides of the aisle to make it a more favorable matchup for them. And they probably see Nikki Haley as at least more of a return to normalcy than Joe Biden. So I think they're prefacing this with this sort of language, and it's going to tell the really Republican people, oh, she has a liberal mega-donor. Oh, she is getting some money, she is getting some support, but ah, oh, she has a liberal mega-donor. And that's why they have to keep bringing that up, and they can't just talk about her numbers alone. And let's talk about those small fundraising dollar numbers. Quote In the f- twenty four hours after her runner up finish to Trump in Tuesday's Republican presidential primary in New Hampshire, the former two term South Carolina governor, who later served as UN ambassador in the Trump administration, hauled in one million dollars in grassroots online donations. As Fox News reported on Thursday, Haley raked in another one million after she responded on social media to a warning that Donald Trump directed to GOP donors to stop contributing to his remaining major rival for the twenty twenty four. For Republican nomination. Hours later, the campaign touted that the total 48-hour haul had reached $2.6 million. And that's exactly what Haley wanted out of New Hampshire, besides the win, because that would have really touted her numbers, but to show that she's a viable candidate, to make sure that she's still prominent on the U.S. stage, the in the conversation for the primary, and then get some small dollar donors from it so she can go into South Carolina strong. And I think if you put these numbers out alone, it would a lot of Republicans would say, oh, wow, okay, she's picking up steam. Maybe I really should consider her. And that's why. And I'm trying I am attributing uh, some sort of belief or thought process to Fox News. And maybe that's naive of me. Maybe they are just being 100 percent straight up here and trying to give both sides. But. They would start having this message, hey, she made a lot of good money. And then once again, they jump straight back to the point that the liberal mega-donor that was behind her, who also gave money to Biden, they talk about that within this article, they say, oh, yeah, he also gave money to the PAC supporting Biden. He did give a good chunk of change to the PAC supporting Nikki Haley. And, you know, he's kind of doubtful that she has a path forward. So not only is it saying it's a liberal person donating to her, so maybe you should reconsider from the Republican side of the aisle, but also they're including the part where he questions whether or not she can actually win the nomination. So this is just Fox News, or at least the person who's writing by, uh, this one's by Paul uh, Steenhauser. He is just coming and gunning for Haley. He obviously is part of the Never Nikki movement. And let's be clear, um, I've had my opinion on this, I said it in the last podcast, not the biggest fan of Nikki Haley, but it is unfortunate when you see uh, a news organization take such an obvious stand and try to uh, attack Uh, um, undercut, that's the better word, undercut a major primary candidate rather than letting the information get out there and the people make their choice with that information. So that's enough on that. Let's jump to our daily delight. And this one comes from SWNS. And the headline reads, Funny moment, 200-pound dog meets his new sibling, a tiny kitten, for the first time. And I'm not going to read the entire thing, but I'll give you one little quote from it. This adorable dog moment, who is 200 pounds and was welcoming welcoming in his new sibling, a tiny kitten, Otto von Bismarck, an English Mastiff, welcomed tiny Fritz Carlton, a 16-week-old kitten, at home 10 weeks ago. And I think this these people really like uh, German names. Uh, basically, the story gets around to saying that Mr. Uh, I can't believe his name is Otto von Bismarck, Uh, Barksmark. Sorry, they're very clever. Uh, Mr. Barksmark does eventually come around to the kid, but he's kind of like, whoa, whoa, what is this tiny thing doing here? Am I am I going to crush this this tiny little guy? You can kind of see it in the eyes that they have in the video here. He's like, what is this? Is this this isn't a dog. This isn't like my my child or, or my brother this is not going to be as big as me. I got to be really delicate. Is this okay? And eventually he does come around to it. And if you want to see the cute video for this one, or you want to read any of today's articles, like I mentioned earlier, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.